Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We're your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode four. We get it. You took intro to philosophy. This week, we'll be looking at chapters nine through 11 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of philosophy. In case you're new here, each week we will be examining a section of the books through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply it to our real lives. And then we'll take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. After that, we will be taking a page out of Master Elodin's book and expanding our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and our own lives. All right, we're going to say this every single time, but since we have read and analyzed both The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as The Slow Regard of Silent Things and The Lightning Tree, please understand that we will be pulling knowledge from all of those works, and this is your spoiler warning for the episode. And let's also make clear that we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. And also a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, goodness knows we do it, we are not going to stand for any abuse of the author. All right, now that that is all out of the way, it is time to recap chapters 9 through 11. And this time, it's Will's turn. And I betcha he's going to have to eat a cherry because I betcha he's going to fail. You would lose that bet. The streak will live on. All right. You have a timer ready? All righty. In three, two, one, go. Quoth rides in a wagon where Abanthi made flagons of alcoholic brews. Through those lessons, Quoth chewed. He learned heart of stone, which made him as insensate as bone, and split up his mind to place he can find. Quoth was demonstrably wrong when he shared a crude song that mocked a lady's choice without hearing her voice. Maybe it's his mom, such a truth bomb! But in the end, all we're left with is noise. You did it again! 22 seconds. I have to eat my words, but not a raspberry. And I'm not eating a cherry. Streak lives on. I'm going to make this into a 30 second challenge instead. Yeah, let's do 30 seconds. Well, I'm going to make yours 30 seconds. I'm going to keep it at 45. Haha. <laughs> That's your right as a coward. Look, it's not my fault that you don't challenge yourself to do rhyming couplets. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> well, you did it last week, so obviously you're capable of it. Don't know what you're afraid of. I don't like raspberries. I don't like cherries, and you don't see me shrinking from the challenge. So now that we've got the rhyming couplets out of the way... It is time to go in-depth on the chapters that we have selected. This week we're talking about chapters 9 through 11 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of philosophy. In this section of the book, we get Quoth's first attempts at learning about the mystical side of the world. He's first getting his exposure to philosophy and science and math, history, all of them. It seems like it's just a very shallow understanding of a lot of deep subjects. It's like he's read the encyclopedia entries for all of these. And nothing else. I read Wikipedia about it. I know what I need to know. 
that's enough, right? One of the first things that we also learn here is how to identify an arcanist, specifically by their gilder, or gilta. Which, actually, I, I have a question about this, and I'm wondering, are there other arcanums outside of the university in Imre? Is that the only place where people learn to become arcanists? It does seem like a lot of arcanists maybe go out and teach, which is how so many people come back to the university. Because I get the impression that when you go to the university, you are expected to at least have some prior knowledge. Yeah, the, the entry process, they basically grill you on all sorts of stuff that you'd have to have at least had some sort of prep school of it. Or had a lot of money. Or both. Also, talking about the Gilder, when Cobb was talking about Taverlin the Great, he mentioned that there was an amulet, and I mentioned that it sounded like a gram. It might also be that it's a Gilder. Gilders aren't talked about nearly as in-depth because Quoth isn't trying to make one at any point in the book. I'm wondering if maybe it could be that. It's possible. It could be that you're given your own gram once you graduate to protect you going forward. And the Gilder is that. Yeah. In this, he also gets his first hint that there's a library with more books than you could ever possibly read, which to me sounds like the ultimate summer reading program. Do you remember when we were kids and we'd go to the library and get a sticker in our sticker book every time that we read a book? Yep, and then you'd turn them in at the end and they'd give you a certain number of personal pizzas at the local pizza hut. You got that? I never got that. What'd you get? I think I just got stickers that had like broccoli on them. That's just sad. <laughs> like, if you ever want to teach a child to hate reading. I still love reading. I know. By accident. No thanks to that summer reading program. At least it's not the summer reading program from Night Vale. Librarians oh. are scary in Night Vale. <laughs> I liked my librarians. Yeah, my librarians are pretty awesome. You just got broccoli stickers? And maybe other fruits and vegetables. Well, you didn't actually get to turn them in for anything? I don't remember. All I'm saying is, you got robbed. He also has a bit of a conversation about the difference between a knack and a clever skill. A knack being sort of a supernatural ability, very limited in scope, such as his troop member Trip, who always rolls seven on any set of dice that he ever rolls. There's other mentions of the word knack in previous chapters. I'm wondering, though, if his knack for languages is also actually a knack, or if it's just that he has a knack for learning maybe... Not deeply, but learning new information. Yeah, he definitely seems to be what you would call gifted. He's a bright child. He's got plenty of ability to learn. He has a lot of neuroplasticity. One thing I do notice that he hasn't learned is the difference between being patronized and contradicted. Kvothe seems to get defensive any time that anyone believes he's not as smart as he believes he is. Yes. I'm going to put my cards on the table here. While I really enjoy this book, and I think it's a lot of fun, Kvothe himself as a character is someone who, if I knew him in real life, I would probably loathe him. He does tend to well actually a lot. I can't think of a single conversation that I've had that has been productive when it started with well actually. No matter if it's you saying it or other people saying it. Exactly. It's never been something that's turned out well for anyone. 
Let's be honest here. You've been an intro to philosophy student. I have these harsh critiques because I see them in myself. And understand that when I roast him here, I am also roasting myself. We've all been here. The question is, do you grow out of it? Let's just be fair real quick before we start ripping into him, because we will. He is no more than 22 years old by the time that he's retelling his story. And he's just as insufferable as a 22-year-old who has taken a few philosophy classes can be. Again, speaking as someone who majored in philosophy, I remember at 22 I was pretty insufferable. It's good to know that you know that now. Yeah, so he learns about math and science and distilling liquor and bandaging a wound and setting a bone and diagnosing hundreds of sicknesses from symptoms and making four different aphrodisiacs and three contraceptives and nine for impotence and two maiden's helper filters, which are left purposefully vague. And at this point, really what he's learning is theoretical knowledge. Again, like you were saying, it's very wide, but doesn't seem to go very deep. He chafes at being forced to learn something well before he can learn the next step in something. He has that sort of, I already know this. I don't need to go any further. So it kind of reminds me of when I was teaching a little game design workshop a few years back. The whole point of it was to get the students to learn a little bit deeper knowledge than just the surface level of what the game is, to look into the mechanics and to look into how everything works together. And we had one kid who, in all fairness, he was autistic. He understood the mechanics so quickly. He picked it up at the second that he understood he was bored. He was done. He didn't know why we had to keep going into it. He would hate this podcast. He was the kid that wanted to go out into the hallway and play Go with me while the other teacher was explaining further down the line of what the implications of the game mechanics were. And Kvothe kind of reminds me of this kid. One other thing I notice is he hates it when people treat him the way he treats other people. He hates being patronized too, and yet here's what he says to Chronicler, who has been through the university is an actual arcanist, has his own gram. He says, I don't know if you understand what a geometric progression is. It's a little patronizing. A little? Okay, <laughs> let's also understand some of this is very similar to how Patrick Rothfuss speaks. And some of this is for the benefit of the book audience. So when he explains sympathy in great detail, it is not... For Chronicler, it is ostensibly for Chronicler's readers. And it is also very clearly for us. Right, having to lay down how the world works for those of us who don't live in it. And meanwhile, he also discovers sort of the joys of intro to philosophy level metaphysics and epistemology with the game of sophistry. So sophistry, for those of you who are... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know who the sophists are. <laughs> so for those of you who aren't picking up on this, Will is about to do what Quoth does. Go ahead. I'm doing this and I'm also mocking myself as I do it. It's essentially getting hung up in the semantics of an argument without actually engaging in the substance of it. So for instance, recognizing that 
maybe certainty is not what his audience is looking for. When Avanthi says, will the rock fall? Quoth responds, probably. And he says it in that way that he recognizes that, yeah, it totally will. But he doesn't believe that there's any possibility that it won't. Yeah, he does that a couple of times. It's part of that, well, actually. He understands also that he's not supposed to contradict his teacher. And it's all very disingenuous and caught up in the technicality. Also, he falls into the, that's a fallacy trap. There is a wonderful series of YouTube videos on the Idea Channel that are all about the fallacies. There's the ad hominem, there's straw man argument, a variety of them. And one of the sneakiest fallacies to fall into is the that's a fallacy fallacy, where you point out that an argument is fallacious as a way to say that it is untrue. Fallacious simply means that your logic is faulty. It doesn't mean that the conclusion is false. Right. You can get to the right conclusion with the wrong argument. One of those wrong arguments is not all blah, 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 blah are like this. It's a really tricky thing to avoid. Oftentimes when you don't have a strong argument in favor of your own position, sometimes you just fall into the trap of pointing out a logical fallacy in your opponent's argument. And it makes you sound insufferable. Yes, as anyone who has ever witnessed an argument on the internet can attest. Another one of the intro to philosophy level mistakes that Quoth falls into, and I don't think he ever really gets out of, is solipsism. Solipsism is the belief that you are the only one that actually matters in the universe. In fact, he starts his own story by saying, we're going to talk about the only story that matters, mine. Quoth is objectively terrible. We've all seen varying degrees of solipsism. It can be anything from, I'm living in a simulation and everything around me is illusory, so it doesn't really matter what I do. AKA The Matrix. Yeah, we get it. You've seen The Matrix. That was the alternate title to this episode. <laughs> yeah, I went through a phase after I saw The Matrix. It was a dark time. You were also, what, 20? 19. Quoth understands enough about stories to know that everyone is the star of their own story. But he also thinks that everyone's story is really about how they met him. What I find funny, though, is Ben even says none of your petty philosophy. Is there any other kind? Look, I can say that I've got a BA and BS. So one thing that actually got me interested here is when Abanthi is talking about the Alar, the writing crop belief, he illustrates it by brandishing his slapstick that he uses for his donkeys. He actually asks first, do you believe in God? And Kvothe is like, eh? Do you believe in your parents? Well, they're not here right now. It's a bratty answer. And then I'm wondering, though, because it finally came down to the slapstick, the writing crop. Is the writing crop belief the name of it because of this interaction? And will he always think of it that way? He certainly does seem to think about it that way, and he brings it up as that writing crop belief. And the thing that actually got me questioning was, does Kvothe believe that Ben would hit him with it? So what I took from that is seems to foreshadow the actual corporal punishment that he would endure at the university. 
And I'm sure that Ben had to go through some form of at least threat of corporal punishment. It's clear that Ben is a product of the university, which does not shy from corporal punishment, and in some cases, very brutal corporal punishment. Hence, Quoth's scars. In terms of finding parallels to certain things, Ben talks about how real arcanists, you can tell who they are versus someone who just knows a little bit of sympathy. And it kind of parallels how strongly held Quoth's belief is that the Edimaru are to be held up on a pedestal where other troopers are not. There's a little bit of that classism that he has going on. I find that parallel interesting. I also found it kind of disturbing, actually, where Abanthi says, if you want to impose your will upon the world, I mean, that's a kind of fascistic thought, that you can actually impose your will, not just on other people, but on the very fabric of reality. Quoth almost sort of does this, though, through all of the stories about him. If you are going to impose your will on the world, you must have control over what you believe. It never actually says that what you believe should be true, or good, or for the betterment of other people. It has the feeling of what the philosopher Harry Frankfurt refers to as bullshit. One thing that jumps out to me that Quoth actually says, Ben never exercised his wit at the expense of others. Quoth does. Constantly. I don't think that Quoth learned from Ben's example. There is a difference between learning something and then learning how to exploit it. And I think he's got a little bit of that going on right now. So I don't know about you, but I think that in this little section especially, Abanthi reminds me a lot of how Master Elodin will be when we get to him. Yeah, there's a lot of shades that match up. Can you explain a little bit to me about how Ben teaches? So Ben's instructional style is essentially asking a series of leading questions, which is similar to the Socratic method, where instead of just telling Kvothe a series of facts, when he starts getting into true instruction, he starts by asking questions and leading Kvothe into a series of thought exercises that force him to actually arrive at a conclusion. So in terms of how Ben is trying to encourage Quoth to discover new things, I like a few of his methods. One of them is to make him play a game without having a board or pieces. He has to do it all in his head and think about all of the implications as he's going along. I think that's a really interesting thought experiment to do. And I also like that he first teaches Quoth how to use tools and then teaches him how to do without them. Look at every time you're told to show your work on a math test versus just putting down the answer. Which always drove me crazy because I could do a lot of it in my head. I too was like Quoth <laughs> because I too was a young little brat. <laughs> I think Ben is trying very hard to get an 11-year-old to understand why he shouldn't be impatient. But he's doing it in a way that doesn't cater to an 11-year-old. He's going and saying, 
hey, did you learn how to juggle all at once? And the 11-year-old Quoth is like, no, but I wanted to. Should have let me. So he's kind of still being that whiny little 11-year-old. I think also that Quoth being so young and earnest makes it so that he doesn't see every time that Ben is mocking him. He's a little naive. He doesn't quite grasp that Elir is probably the equivalent of sophomore, which is to say wise fool. He also mocks him by saying, astound me with your grasp of historical minutiae, Elir. <laughs> and then we go into this whole big page and a half worth of explanation of what the money system used to be. Throughout it, he learns that, oh, hey, maybe he's been a little bit mean to Ben by pestering him in the middle of a lecture. Even though he still talks about how it was hard to take him serious without eyebrows. Kind of reminds me of Adam from Mythbusters. <laughs> Am I missing an eyebrow? <laughs> but at the same time, his little 11-year-old brain, which is being retold through his 20-something-year-old mouth, he somehow still thinks that Ben was surprised at how fast he was learning, at the fact that he learned things without being told them. Like that you don't need the pine pitch to make the sympathy work. I feel like if Quoth had just shut up and dealt with the fact that he should have been in Hem's class, that he would have been the kid in the back of the class going, you know, you don't need the pine pitch. To which everyone else would say, not the point. Everyone else would have rolled their eyes and just gone, Ugh. He's that kid. I was kind of that kid. Oh, I was that kid. I test poorly, and I am aware of that. So I tested into a lower math class than I was capable of doing when I went to college. Instead of appealing to people who could actually help me figure out where I should actually be, I took the class because I needed it to graduate. For the first couple of days that the class existed, I was the kid in the back of the class with my headphones on, rolling my eyes, going, I don't need to take this. I took this in high school. It was only a year ago. I don't need this. I could do this with my eyes shut. The one saving grace that I had was that another class that I really wanted to take happened to open up and it was at the same time as my math class. So I asked my math teacher if I could sign up for the class that was at the same time as his class and then just take the tests in the math class. And he said yes. I don't know how. No, I do know how. Because I was an obnoxious little jerk. That is how I got out of being in that math class. It's not a life lesson. This is not, you should do this. This is a, I somehow managed to get into a class that was more fun for me while still being able to graduate by just taking the tests and doing the homework for a math class that was below my level. Not bragging. This was stupid. I was a little 20-year-old brat. If I came up against somebody that was like that now, I don't know what I'd do. I'd either try to get rid of them, which is probably what my math teacher did, or force them to stay. <laughs> When we get to Master Ham's first class, I'll have a story about this. I don't come off looking good in it. One of the things that I notice is there's this mistake where we oftentimes conflate intelligence with maturity. 
And I think it's a mistake that both Quoth and Aventhe make here. The idea that because someone is smart, that they're also mature. But those are two very different things. I think that you hit the nail on the head, too, when you talked about how Abenthe mistakes, how quickly Quoth learns academics. But he's missing the fact that Quoth doesn't learn social graces at the same rate. I think adult Quoth wants to make it appear that he is at least somewhat self-aware at this point. Well, don't think that everything was easy for me and that I didn't get into any trouble. Here's an example of me getting into non-trouble. And I learned from this a lot. He didn't. I do believe that in some ways he is still stuck at being 11 years old emotionally. And we see an example of this when Kvoth picks up this seemingly innocuous nursery rhyme from a little girl in town. So this is the first time that we actually hear the lackless rhyme, or at least the first version of it that we get. Do you want to read that for us? Absolutely. Seven things has Lady Lackless. Keeps them underneath her black dress. One a ring that's not for wearing. One a sharp word not for swearing. Right beside her husband's candle, there's a door without a handle. In a box, no lid or locks. Lackless keeps her husband's rocks. There's a secret she's been keeping. She's been dreaming and not sleeping. On a road that's not for traveling, Lackless likes her riddle raveling. The one thing that hugely jumps out at me is the word raveling, because later on, Adima Rue are referred to as ravel. It's a bit of a slur there. A bit. There is a lot of sexual innuendo in this rhyme. It's a lot of references to the genitals of Lady Lackless's husband, which could very easily be Quoth's dad. Or whoever Quoth's mom was originally betrothed to. Possibly. Or if this was actually about a Lady Lackless that was before her. Either way, it's not very nice. And Quoth's mother, Lorian, makes mention of how that rhyme is not very nice to the real Lady Lackless. She doesn't mention who the Lady Lackless is. It could be her sister. Doubt it. Her sister is still unmarried by the time that we meet her in Wise Man's Fear. But there are a lot of people that have had more theories about some of the lines in this rhyme. Seven things has Lady Lackless. One of them is a ring that's not for wearing. So there's a few different references to rings within the story. One of them is once you have named an element, you can make a ring out of it and wear it to say that you have now had power over that element, so Fella gets a ring of stone. One a ring that's not for wearing might be a ring of an element that she has mastered the name of. There's another possibility that it is a ring from Ventus. As you may recall from The Wise Man's Fear, the people of Ventus share rings with one another to indicate debt or status with someone else, and one in particular, which is a charred wooden ring, which is meant to indicate that you are persona non grata with that person. It's a ring that no one would ever wear. I could see the people of Ventus giving either Lorien or Arladin such a ring. Right beside her husband's candle, 
Could be a literal candle. Could be innuendo. Probably innuendo. There's a door without a handle. Probably also not a literal door. Though there are suspicions that it is the Door of Stone, which is the name of the third book. There's also references to maybe the four-plate door that is in the archives. Again, it could very easily be a literal candle. But if it's underneath her skirt? Underneath her dress. Not better. Nope. In a box, no lid or locks. Lockless box, yeah. lackless box, the box that Melo and Lackless shows off to Kvothe when he's in Severin. Lackless keeps her husband's rocks. Sexual innuendo? Yep. Literal rocks? Maybe. There's a secret she's been keeping. She's been dreaming and not sleeping. On a road that's not for traveling, Lackless likes her riddle raveling. We don't know the origin of this rhyme. We don't know if it has morphed over time. We don't know how old it is. If it is about Lorien, it's probably no more than 12 or 13 years old. But in 12 or 13 years, things can morph, especially when you're telling it from one voice to another voice to another person. And especially when those people hearing it are kids. Absolutely. Which brings us to the rhyme that is very similar, but it's in the wise man's fear. Seven things stand before the entrance to the lackless door. One of them a ring unworn. One a word that is forsworn. One a time that must be right. One a candle without light. One a son who brings the blood. One a door that holds the flood. One a thing held height in keeping. Then comes that which comes with sleeping. I wonder if one a son who brings the blood is Kvothe. The one that you just read seems to me like it almost has sort of a prophetic element to it. The version that Kvothe hears almost sounds like a court rhyme told by some jester to mock someone, to make fun of Lady Lackless, as sort of a perversion of the first, and then spread around the common folk to make fun of her, to demean her. I can see exactly why that would be a really mean thing to do. And I love the bit where Kvothe brings up that we say mean things about Lady Periel in the play, and then Kvothe's mom responds that Lady Periel is just a character, Lady Lackless is a real person with feelings that can be hurt. She also mentions that there is a difference between saying something to a person and saying something about a person. Let's go ahead and morph into a little bit about how this has affected our real life. In my case, this is very striking because when I was younger, I worked at a call center. There is a specific man who called multiple times and I could see phone teller after phone teller after phone teller interacting with this man. Get a call, do your normal greeting, get a person who is screaming at you. He'd start the call off giving the information we ask, you know, account number, which social, all these things that we need to check. And then eventually he'd be hung up on and the teller would look really upset. And then I got him and I found out what the deal was. Not only was he swearing his head off, eventually he called me a bench and I hung up on him because I could deal with being sworn at. I don't really care 
swear words are swear words. They're just words. I don't care. But the moment that he went from I'm going to be angry about the situation to I am going to be angry at you and I am going to start demeaning you and I am going to start calling you names on this recorded line where I have already been hung up on by at least four other people because presumably he called them that too. And then I got him again after about three or four other people and he was livid and I wanted to help him sort of. I at least wanted him to stop being so damn angry. I tried to get his account number again and he called me a bench again and I hung up on him again. Another thing I noticed here is a lesson that was taught to me in school about talking about people behind their back. If you say something mean to someone to their face, it's one thing because they're at least there to defend themselves. But if you're just talking about someone behind their back, they're not there to actually give an account. They can then just morph into this terrible monster of a person in your mind and you don't really get to know them more complexly. At that point, it just becomes gossip. It's something that I think is really endemic in our culture too. It's really easy to want to just talk about people behind their backs and it can get pretty toxic because then you start imputing their motives and they're not there to actually say what's going on. They're not there to actually give a defense or even try to atone for what they supposedly did. You've just turned them into a monster. Or into a pariah. Which is what we're seeing happen here in the rhyme. It can be really devastating. There are a lot of similarities between the two rhymes. The first thing that Lady Lackless has is a ring that is not for wearing. And in the second rhyme, it's one of them a ring unworn. In the first rhyme, one a sharp word not for swearing. One a word that is forsworn in the second. There's references to a candle in both rhymes, right beside her husband's candle. One a candle without light. There's a door without a handle. The entrance to the lackless door. And also one a door that holds the flood. In a box, no litter locks. One a thing tight held in keeping. I hope that we do get a resolution to this. Both of these seem significant. I agree. I wonder if either of these rhymes have a relation to the Chandrian. You know, this is a story about the Chandrian, so in some way, I bet they do. Because we looked at the story through a lens of philosophy, now we're going to look at how philosophy affects our real lives. In my past life, I got a BA and BS. Philosophy is oftentimes regarded as a very petty subject or esoteric, not useful. When I was studying, the old joke was, how do you get a philosophy major off your doorstep? How? You pay for the pizza. Oh. <laughs> it was generally regarded as one of the more unemployable majors out there, second only to underwater basket weaving. It was definitely something that does not immediately conjure practical use. But I found that in the course of making a career for myself outside of just academia, a lot of the lessons that I learned in philosophy classes have really helped me. For instance, writing papers that had to be understandable to a layperson 
taught me how to write about complex technological subjects in ways that your average user could make sense of. Learning how to structure an argument taught me how to write a persuasive email. I learned basic logic, which taught me a lot about how to construct logical architectural diagrams. All of that stuff I probably wouldn't have learned if I just decided to take a computer science course, even though I'm in tech. Depending on who you are, there is a tendency to look down on academics. There is a tendency to think that academics think that they are better than other people. Even if those of us who excel at academia don't see it that way. One of my close friends who works in the same field as me does not have a bachelor's degree. She is probably smarter than me, but I just happen to have a different framework to view things. And we end up complementing one another nicely in the way we look at the world. One other thing about philosophy is it teaches you how to analyze an argument. Whenever we are looking at, for instance, politics, we're being presented with an argument for how the world is or ought to be. Philosophy can help us to really understand the implications for those things, that sometimes they go deeper than just an understanding of how much the tax rate should be or something like that. Oftentimes, a philosophical education can help you understand what those arguments say about the person's worldview and what matters to them and to their party that they're trying to push forward. Sometimes the implications leave you appreciating that person more, and sometimes it can be really frightening in what they reveal. Just as a little wrap-up to how it applies to the story, do you think that Quoth ever gets past a surface-level understanding of philosophy? Not that we've seen. I think he hasn't really grappled with what these things mean to the larger world. He is still very much of the opinion that the only thing that matters in his story is him. Yep. And now we come to the point in the podcast where we talk about our phronemos of the week. The phronemos is an Aristotelian concept, as you may remember, that describes the practically wise person. It's your turn this week to pick one out. Who'd you pick? Well, in these couple of chapters, we have a total of three choices. Well, and Kvothe obviously doesn't count. I hate to say it, but I'm pretty sure that Kvothe will never be the Fernimos of the week. Nope. So the other choices are Abanthi. I think Abanthi himself winds up falling into a lot of traps to do with wisdom. I think he may be very educated, but I'm not sure he's very wise. He does seem a little reckless in what he's introducing both to without actually thinking about why you should care about this stuff. So that leaves Lorian. Luckily for us, Kvothe's mother is pretty wise. If only Kvothe would listen to her. Or internalize the things that she has to say. Lorian has a quiet wisdom and a kind one. She's very patient with Quoth because she realizes that her son is 11 years old. Instead of getting angry or visibly angry with him for having said this 
rather crude rhyme about a person that is very likely her. She asks him to think about the words that he is saying. She knows that it is better to make Kvothe think for himself and not to just give him answers. Because when you give Kvothe answers, he thinks he knows a thing. When you make him think about it, he gets frustrated and has to actually confront something that maybe he didn't like about himself. It's the whole thing about give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish without the flippant, and then he'll sit in a boat and drink beer all day. <laughs> she definitely has some good thoughtful wisdom here. I love how she encourages Quoth to think about the words that he's saying and how someone might feel as a result of those. To imagine Lady Lackless complexly as a person with thoughts, emotions, desires, beyond just being a character. And I don't think this is a lesson that Quoth really internalizes, sadly. I think there are a lot of lessons like this that Quoth doesn't internalize, as we will see as we go on. And now we come upon the time where we talk about an interesting fact. That's right. We're going to be taking to heart the lessons of Master Elodin. Expanding our knowledge of the world around us is one of the ways that we do this and learning to be more aware of our planet. I've got an interesting one for you, and I think it might touch on some of the stuff that we've covered today. This is a story about learning. For many years, neuroscientists have believed that the kind of neuroplasticity required to radically reshape the brain's functionality was available only to the very young, infants and toddlers who are kind of sponges for new knowledge. That is, until they looked at the brains of London cab drivers in training. To become a cab driver in London, it's not enough to simply pass a rudimentary driving test and know how to use a GPS app like your average Lyft or Uber driver. Before someone can become a London cabbie, they must acquire what is known as the knowledge, which is to say a detailed understanding of the city's distinct geography, including all the various byroads and ins and outs of the ancient city, and how to route efficiently between any two of approximately 25,000 points of interest. Before they can light up the fair light on the cab, they have to pass a grueling exam that forces them to perform these tasks on demand. Of all the people who seek to learn the knowledge, only about 30% succeed in gaining it and passing the exam. In 2011, neuroscientists used an MRI machine to inspect the brains of trainee London taxi drivers before and after knowledge acquisition. And they found that the hippocampus, which is concerned with spatial memory and navigational ability, was noticeably larger in those who had attained the knowledge and gained cabbie status, which is a change that should have been theoretically impossible in adults. Which just goes to show that there's a lot of learning we can do, even as we advance in age. So, is that interesting? It is because I love learning. My YouTube habits are mostly watching science shows and watching things about social interactions and psychology so that I can learn more. I decided that one of the things I wanted to do was learn how to edit audio. One of the other things I wanted to learn was how to play the guitar and the ukulele. I think that if you convince yourself that learning is only for the young, that you are doing yourself a mass disservice. Well, and the thing that really interests me is the actual physical change 
in their anatomy as a result of acquiring this knowledge. It almost seems like something out of a fantasy story. I like that people want to know and are curious. The scientists who are performing these tests are also learning. It's not just that they are measuring the cabbies learning and seeing a physical change, which is very cool that that happens. I think it's important to register that we need to be intellectually curious. We need to not stick our heads in the sand. That's part of why the two of us have decided to share interesting facts every week. And I love that you went down the rabbit hole of learning. This has had its desired effect. I knew you would love this one. <laughs> and you do not need to eat a cherry. The streak lives on. And so now we come to the time to talk about the seven words from life and from the book. Book goes first, and that would be me. My seven words from the book are spoken by Lorian, where she says, always think about what you're singing, honey. Oh, that's a nice one. I think that's important. I think it is important to think about the lyrics of songs and not just get caught up in the tune, the beat. I think that words matter. Think about how many times you've been singing along to a song in the car, and then someone else is like, ooh, that sounds terrible when you sing it out loud. I've heard just a mix of songs being played at a party where the host's children show up about halfway through and I'm listening and I'm just like, wait, 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 the kid is six. Maybe they don't know what the words mean. And I can tell you for a fact that I didn't know what the words to fortunate son meant when I was a kid and my parents played it on the radio. I didn't know what the words to get back from the Beatles meant. None of these things registered as having a meaning. They always kind of seemed like words that went along with the beat and I liked the beat. I liked the music. But sometimes you have to listen to the meaning of the songs because you could be belting out something that you fundamentally disagree with. And you may be inadvertently causing pain to someone that you care about. Or somebody you don't know. Very important stuff. So I've got, you're trapped, I'm cute, it's us time. This is something that we oftentimes say when our cats sit on our laps and will not let us get up. And it's just something that always brings a real smile to my face when I think of being trapped under a kitten. There is something absolutely relaxing about being trapped under a cat. Our little podcasts are great about this. In the meantime, I think we're at the end of our recording session here today. Thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week as we talk about Chapter 12 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of anticipation. We'd like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we have enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, 
Here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. This week on Tales from the Wee... Tales from the, the Wee Stone. Wee! Wee! Yeah, that's what I was thinking we like we. <laughs>